So I want to invite you to kind of imagine something for the first time here as we read Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 30. Imagine for the first time you're hearing about Jesus. I know that's hard. Most of us have heard and even read this particular Christmas story many, many times. But Luke does something really, really intentional as he introduces Jesus under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We could say it's not only intentional, but divinely inspired. That God has a message that he wants us to hear, to be challenged by. As we open up the book of Luke and are introduced to Jesus. So essentially, right off the bat, Luke is trying to introduce us to a theme of what is this book that he's writing going to be all about? Who is this Jesus that he's going to be talking a lot about. So just keep that in mind as we start these first few verses. Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 33. The angel Gabriel says to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive and in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So right off the bat, Luke introduces Jesus and if you're hearing this for the very first time, there are things you are supposed to hear. Luke is trying to make something really, really clear, which is that Jesus is a coming king. He will be called the Son of the Most High. He will be great. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob, which means all of Israel, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So you have throne, reign, kingdom. I mean, this is a kingly theme. It's not meant to be hiding. It's meant to just be right there. This is what Jesus is all about. He is a coming king. So the reader is introduced to this idea that a king is coming. This is an absolute foundational aspect of the worldview that Luke is trying to paint for us to say, as you read this, let this become your reality. From the, be from the very beginning, what frames our expectation about who Jesus is? And then as Jesus arrives on the scene in Luke chapter 2, you can turn there if you'd like, chapter 2, verse 1. What is said about this coming king? Chapter 2, verse 1 to 14. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region were the shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. But the angel of the Lord said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, 
that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel with a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So This is an incredible passage, the, the Christmas story, famous for good reason. But it has a cultural code to it. A first century Greco-Roman Jewish code to it that we have got to unlock to take on the fullness of what Luke is revealing by the Holy Spirit. So let's do that. In the mid-40s B.C., before Christ, the Roman Empire is spreading fast and violently. And it has taken control of most of what at the time would be, to the, especially to the Jewish people and Jewish mindset, the known world. The Romans are taking over, including Israel and the Jewish people. And a savvy young general and politician named Gaius Octavius is rising in power. Through slick political maneuvering and savvy military action, he consolidates power and gains control of the entire Roman power structure. So to the point that in 27 BC, the Roman Senate, in the last kind of gesture to make it final, confers upon him the title of Caesar Augustus, the Caesar spoken of in this passage, acknowledging his supreme position as king of the world, king or emperor of Rome. And here's where it gets really spicy. The emperor was seen as a godlike figure, a son, if you will, of God. He was worshipped in a cult of the emperor, and he was hailed as Lord. The word kurios in Greek, not coincidentally the exact same word that Luke uses to describe Jesus, Christ the Lord. And many cities in the empire rearranged their calendar to begin the year on Augustus's day of birth. So his birth would be celebrated on the basis that Augustus had been sent as the Savior, the Soter, who made an end to all war. And again, just to be clear, the word Soter, Savior, the exact word that Luke uses intentionally. And this day of his birth had marked the beginning of the message of good news to the world, euangelion. And choirs were used in worship of this Savior and Lord. Augustus was praised, having inaugurated worldwide peace they called it the Pax Romana. And in fact, there was even an altar to Pax Augusta, the Augustan peace, a statue in the city of Rome. So knowing all of these political, cultural realities about the sitting emperor and king of the time of Jesus' birth, all of these things already existed. And Luke intentionally uses this language. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. Imagine if you're the first century reader in this Greco-Roman world. Maybe you're a Jew, maybe you're not. You know all of these truths that have been said about Caesar Augustus. And you hear this. Fear not, for behold, I bring you, and, and really what you 
should hear is the real good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a the real Savior, who is Christ, the real Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, the real choir, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest on earth, the real peace among those with whom he's pleased. The Christmas story, if you don't know this or haven't heard this, is by Luke absolutely an intentional, incendiary political statement that the sitting emperor, king of the world, is a false king, while the babe in the manger is the real king. The false king decrees that the whole world has to be registered so he, they can properly be taxed under his peace. The true king coming on the scene so that the whole world can be set free from sin and death. The false king sitting up in Rome did the dirty work to consolidate power through putting himself on the throne and essentially forcing choirs to sing his praise. Luke wants us to see that the true king chose to humble himself, come lowly as a babe in a manger, to be one with his people. And the choirs of heaven joyfully backed him up. The false king is hailed as the savior with the good news of bringing peace through bloody conquest, rape, and pillage. Luke says, now nah, the true king will shed his blood and pillage hell to bring the real peace between God and humanity. And that is the one true good news to be shared. So with the stroke of a pen and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke is picking a fight. Luke is saying specifically, he's using all of the primary names and descriptors of the sitting emperor of the world and saying those are lies. That is not true. He's the false king. The real king. The real savior. The real bringer of peace about whom the, seven, the heavens sing and people shout good news is not you, Caesar Augustus. It's the child born in a manger to the lowly Jews. This is treason, and Luke could die for it. Jesus did die for it. Not coincidentally, the sign above Jesus' head when he was on the cross is the king of the Jews. Make no mistake, from the, the Roman perspective, Jesus' power and the, the power that he was gaining as a movement among the people was a threat to Roman political power. So he was executed as a political insurgent. And Luke wants us to see that. He wants us to feel that. The first century reader would hear this passage and absolutely no doubt be thinking about Caesar and Augustus, and all the things that have been told to the whole world about Caesar, and, and be pushed to wrestle with a question, a dramatic question of where is your allegiance? Who is your true king? Luke does two things. He clearly sets forth that one of the primary ways of understanding the person of Jesus is that he is the king of kings that is calling for entire allegiance. And that that's not just a Christmas meditation, it's actually the, the fundamental, a fundamental piece of understanding who Jesus is and what he's all about. And then secondly, Luke reminds us that with that, we have to know there will always be false kings who are vying to take Jesus' place in our life. There will be those who say, yeah, I'll give you peace. I'll be your savior. Come find refuge in me. 
I have the good news you're looking for. And so when you put those two things together, that Jesus is king and there is many false kings who will vie for that place in our life, it leaves us at a place where we just don't celebrate oh, Jesus is king at Christmas. It's We have to keep before us as followers of Jesus, people who have said yes to Jesus, that there is a question of what does it look like for Jesus to be king every, in every aspect of my life, every day of my life. And as well, we are faced with an interesting, very interesting, similar question of what does it look like to put Jesus as king in this weird world of 2020? Well, there's a lot of ways. And I'm sure you guys have been feeling the tension of wrestling with that. Because the messages coming, in our, coming our way are so vast, so varied. There are so many different messages coming our way this year. That we've got to be just completely living under a rock to not feel this tension of what does it look like if I'm a Christian, if I'm wanting to follow Jesus, if I'm wanting to declare that Jesus is king and live out all of the, the commands of God that we are given in the scripture. We've got to feel that there are clashes going on all around us right now. That there are messages that challenge us to serve another king. To put our trust in other things, which is the same thing as serving another king. To put our hope in other places. To fear things other than God. Got to feel that tension big time this year. And I'm reminded of the Joshua passage. It was interesting. There is uh, multiple, more than one prophetic words this year. As we started the year, we try to listen to God to get some, some vision for 2020. As we do every year, and, and that should be a regular part of the life as a believer with the Holy Spirit and in community. Part of it is God. What are those promises of your word that you want to highlight, that you want to say? What are those prophetic words that you are putting into my life that you want me to hold on to with faith that you are up to this, you are at work? And this was a big one. Joshua 1.9, it came from multiple places at the beginning of the year. And this is what it was. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid don't despair, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That was in January. Man, that's a good word for this year. Let me read it again. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Don't fear or despair, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Fear and despair are probably the two top descriptors of the reality of 2020. Are they not? Yes. And God's like, but I got you. Have I not commanded you? So this is, this is where it's interesting. So in the middle of the reality of wanting to take the promised land, which was God's promise to his people, he said, don't fear, don't be desp despair. I have commanded you to things. To be strong and courageous. Why? Because I'm with you. It's not about your power anyways. It never has been. It's about you trusting me and my power. So be strong and be courageous. Yeah, there's giants in the land. Yeah, you're small compared to them. It's always been God's message. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It's not about you. It's about trusting what he says and who he is. So that was the very beginning of the year. We've got lots of things like that while fear and despair are rampant in our world. I believe God's word has not changed. Be strong and courageous because I'm with you. Let me show you what it looks like to be king. Trust me. Let me take care of you. We've been feeling the clash. 
So there's many ways to make Jesus king this year, and we, we might come back next week to talk about a few more of them. But I, I want to highlight a couple right now. These are certainly not the only ways to make God king. But I want to highlight one that I think is important based on God's word and our present reality. All of us being here right now are placing Jesus as king in a certain particular way. One is that we are asserting in defiance of the governor that we have God-given rights, not government-given rights, to gather and worship Jesus. Now that's something that's very important to understand the nuance of what's going on there. We are at a unique time in history, in the history of America, whereby gathering together in the name of Jesus, it is a civil disobedience or a disobeying of the governing authorities. That matters. That counts for something. That should not be taken lightly. Because as good citizens of the empire, we want to follow the laws of the land. Unless, as they said in Acts 4, who are we going to obey, you or God? When it comes down to that question, there's a different response. There's a higher king. So we are living out a conviction that says our true king, the one true king, does call us as believers, as followers of Christ, to not stop gathering together to worship, to pray, to lift one, other, one another up, to be encouraged, to get filled with the Spirit, to encounter the life-changing, abundant life-giving presence of God, to equip one another, to do all the stuff that the Bible describes church as so that we can be living the abundant life that the Bible is very, very clear you don't have if you're flying on a solo mission. And in order to then live out the ultimate mission of our king who said, go make disciples of all nations, in order to have a cup that's overflowing to be able to be ambassadors to the world, which that mission never changes, no matter the circumstances of what's going on in the world, we've got to be together, be the church, so that we can be the church to the world, to our friends, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers. Somebody needs some hope out there. So we need to wrestle through a bit this collision of kings. We're, we live in such an interesting place and an interesting time. I think it's healthy, actually, to be honest. When, when Dietrich Bonhoeffer was questioned of how, how is it possible that Hitler was able to take over the nation of Germany when there was such a, a history, a rich history of Christian tradition there. I mean, the, the Reformation started there with Martin Luther. And he said, in, in a summary, he has a quote, a very famous quote on this. You can look it up. It's just coming to mind, so I don't have the quote memorized. But he essentially said, it became too easy to be a Christian. It didn't cost us anything. It's called cheap grace. And when, when grace becomes cheap, it also becomes powerless. If it doesn't cost you anything then you're not willing to, to stand up for it when it matters. I'm wildly paraphrasing what he said. <laughs> but you know who also said that? Uh, Jesus. If you're not willing, what did he say? If you gain the whole world and lose your soul, if you're not willing to come and die, if you're not willing to take up your cross daily, I mean, those are... What? What? We, we live in a place where that we don't really even have to contemplate what that means. There is no coming and dying unless we really spiritualize it, which is healthy also. That is a, a huge part of it because there's plenty in here that needs to be put to death and be transformed. So I'm not minimizing that. But we can also kind of, well, that, but that's just internal. It's between me and God. I, yeah, I'm dying to myself. I don't really, you know, so leave me alone. There's, there's a sense in which we, we, can, we can really gauge our own comfort level. But maybe not anymore. There are some things that are challenging us. There are some clashes of kings right now. So we have this, this interesting time that we're living in. But we have a, a long history 
in our country that gives us right within our founding documents some ways to help navigate this reality of what do we do when there's a clash of kingdoms, when there's a clash of allegiance between kings. So there's this amazing thing in America called the Constitution. It has a section in it called the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights were based upon this idea that's immortalized in our country's official founding document called the Declaration of Independence. In that declaration, an idea is set forth that is the most fundamental of American values. And it is this, that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They are, here it is, endowed by their creator certain unalienable rights. Among them, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. So we're so used to that. We're so swimming in that. We're like the fish in the water. Like it's so normal to us that we can easily miss, like Luke, the incendiary nature of what is being claimed right there. Where do our rights come from? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created, endowed by their creator, created equal, and endowed by their creator, endowed, given by God, certain unalienable rights. That was an absolutely revolutionary idea at the time. There was not a nation on earth that said people's rights come from God in the clarity that this was said. There were some hints here and there. But the world at the time effectively lived under monarchies and dictatorships like Rome where it was just whoever, the survival of the fittest, whoever had the bloody successful rape and pillage conquest they're now the leaders and they're the ones this is the key out of their great benevolence they give rights to the subjects and when they feel like it they take those rights away america was founded on a completely different i would call biblical worldview that God is the one true king, and therefore it is God, our creator, who gives inalienable rights, meaning rights that cannot be taken away. And therefore the government's only job is to preserve and protect those rights that God gave the people. And among those certain unalienable rights given by God, the founders included in the very first of the Bill of Rights this right, that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, which, by the way, we've talked about this before. That means that Congress does not make a law that creates the state and the government-sanctioned one and only religion that the government rules, because that is the divine kingship thing that was an absolute disaster. So it's not saying government can't establish religions. That's You have no idea of your history if you think that's what it is. It's not at all. Just saying government just doesn't get to pick one and say we're in charge of all of you. We'll tell you what you have to believe. So with that aside, Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. You hear, you hear that in there? You can even hear in that language, the founders are not saying the government is the one who gives people the right, to, the right to religious freedom. They know it's not theirs to give. It's saying that the government, the only thing they can do is make no law that prohibits the free exercise of. All the government can do is make laws to protect the pro prohibition of religion. Because it's not theirs to give and it's not theirs to take away. They were given by God. That is the Constitution. So our conviction is that to worship Jesus is a God-given right by the Constitution. But even greater than that, by the Bible, by God's command, What's not theirs to give is not theirs to take away. But right now in our country, parts of the government are making laws, decrees, mandates that prohibit the exercise of religion. And even in such a manner that discriminates against religion. By doing so, saying God is 
not king. We are. For example, in the state of Nevada, a decree was made, a mandate, a decree, suggestion, whatever it is, I don't know. It's kind of funny, you know, the whole legislative process has kind of just been put on hold. You know, that idea that monarchs or governors or presidents were not allowed to just divine fiat create laws. There's a thing called a legislative process for a legislative branch. That's not happening. In the state of Nevada, a decree was made and unfortunately backed by the Supreme Court that churches could not meet indoors, but casinos could continue to operate. In California and Santa Clara County, it was ruled that churches cannot meet indoors and are limited to outdoors with no more than 25 people, no matter the social distancing, while at the exact same time, the county publicly encouraged mass protest as a, quote, fundamental right that is critical to the health of our democracy and posted on their Facebook page, quote, we are with you and we hear you. Now, hey, I'm all about a good protest. That's what we're doing right now. But the juxtaposition against the church is unacceptable. Also in California, a San Diego judge ruled on November 6th that while churches are not allowed to meet indoors, strip clubs are essential. No, I'm not kidding. Look it up, November 6th. I mean, be careful what you type into Google, but uh, uh, I was very careful when I heard this and, and it was like, should I type this into Google right now? It worked. It was okay. But that's disgusting. That strip clubs are essential right now for, for what purpose? But churches cannot meet indoors no matter the size. Come on. You make it easy to defy you. In New York, the governor and mayor of New York City have been very strict on policing houses of worship. Oh, this is, these are super spreader events. These are dangerous. They're going to kill people. Yet they literally, just a couple weeks ago, allowed, well, probably this week too, allowed Saturday Night Live, the beacon of hope that it is, to fill their show, or to film their show, excuse me, with a live, packed indoor audience with the reasoning that since the audience is paid to be there, they are part of the essential workforce. Come on. It just gets, it's getting ludicrous. If any of you want a quarter and help your conscience, I'll give it to you. Many governors across the nation, the tune has been that churches must close. Because they're a public health threat, but it's perfectly legal. We see this state after state after state. It's perfectly legal and fine and necessary for a virtually unlimited number of people to gather in mass numbers and shout for long periods of time. But we can't sing in church. Ironically, the God-given right to freely exercise religion and the God-given right to peacefully protest, which is good, and I agree with it, are part of the same exact amendment in the Bill of Rights. They're all part of number one. But we've got kings who say, nah, follow me. And as things started to open up, ease up in May, you know, we, 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 we care about the health of the population. So we shut down for six weeks in May like everybody else. And when things started to ease up and open up, we noticed that churches were not part of the plan. I mean, literally not even mentioned. It took to the Department of Justice sending a letter to the governor of California because 1,500 pastors had signed a essentiality agreement and all of us said, we're opening no matter what. We don't, you know, sorry, too bad. We don't care anymore. And the attorney general sent a letter and then, oh, the governor remembered that there's churches in California. Literally, we hadn't even been mentioned until that. And way back in the fine print of the last phase of opening, and I don't remember how many phases there were at the time, but literally churches were in the, the way back included with outdoor entertainment to where it doesn't matter if your church is 25 people or 10,000. There's no nuance whatsoever. You cannot gather until this last phase. And now, more recently... There's not phases. There's this, you know, the, the magic color wheel of tears and things. And again, churches, most restrictions, not even all, most restrictions will not be lifted until the very last tier, which we haven't even come close to sniffing that. We've been in the most dangerous tier for the whole time. Even when there was 30 people in the ICU in a 
county that has two and a half million people and 492 ICU beds. So if 30 people in the ICU keeps us in the most dangerous tier, like where's the yellow tier? Like I'm going to be a grandkid, grand, granddad by then. I mean, come on, seriously. The, the yellow tier says you can get into the yellow tier when you have one new COVID case per day for seven days in a row per 100,000 people. In other words, <laughs> never. I mean, so effectively, though, here's where it, it gets real. So if we have to listen to the earthly kings right now, effectively, churches just need to close indefinitely. At this point, if we were listening, it would be like nine months. So you put all this together, you get the sense from many government leaders that they would be just fine if churches disappeared. A more cynical person would say, maybe that's the point. But I defy grumbling and always look to the positive. The po problem with continuing along this direction is if you look at the, the course of human history, when governments have taken power from groups, they rarely ever give it back. So if we just sit back and allow more and more ground to be taken, yeah, sure, close us down for this, yeah, trample on the free exercise of religion for that, sure, yeah, no problem. Hey, we're, we're, we're just good citizens over here. When is that going to stop? Sending the wrong message right now. The government needs to know and be reminded we want to respect the laws of the land, but you are not our ultimate king. There is another king, and our higher allegiance is to him. And our true king, he's calling us right now. I mean, it's been over nine months, and look what's going on in the world. Wow, how does the world need the good news of Jesus? People are hurting, and it's only getting worse. I mean, you think about the stats that we've talked about in here before. That This was way back in June when the CDC released these reports, which... Ironically, they haven't done any more of these studies. Like, why not? Would you please keep us up to date on the mental health of America? It was really helpful. But back in June, you released some stats that were disturbing. And I really want to know, why won't you do another report six months later? It was a little disturbing, wasn't it? Maybe it's too hot to handle. But 40% of Americans said by their own admission in June, the last week of June, that they are experiencing a mental health crisis or substance abuse as a response to try to cope with these indefinite lockdowns. And in a separate article in the Epic Times, 43% of California adults, it's a little higher here in California, expressed the same sentiment. Along in that same study, they said that 11% of adults in the United States of America had expressed, admitted that in the last 30 days, the prior 30 days, they had, had, they had contemplated suicide. 11% of adults? That's one in 10. And that was more than double than in 2018 when it was 4.3%. So adults walking around right now in our country, back in June, probably worse, probably significantly worse. One in 10 have thought about ending their life. And in the demographic age range of 18 to 24, young adults, it was one in four, 25%. One in four young, precious young adults who are supposed to be looking forward to the, you know, they're the ones that have got hope, right? They're the ones that are, you know, the world hasn't burned them yet. It's like, oh, man, I could do anything. The world is my oyster. i got so much to look forward to. And one in four have considered, you know what? I don't even know if this whole life thing is worth it. That's, that's heavy. That, that's disturbing. Oh, my gosh. Sorry, I don't know what to say without my free 99-cent download. Those numbers should get us absolutely fired up. That is tragic. Because those have eternal consequences. Those numbers have serious eternal consequences. Now, I'm not saying other numbers don't matter as well. 
We don't want any, we don't want people to die from COVID either. So yeah, from the beginning, what have we said? If you have a, if you're immunocompromised, stay home. If you're sick, stay home. Protect the vulnerable. That's a good thing. That's always a good thing. These numbers matter too. The fact that so much of our society is, is in such fear and despair that ending their own life looks attractive. If that doesn't wake up the church to say, where are you and what are you doing? I don't know what could. I mean, is that the time for the church to shrink back? If we really believe that we got the only hope in the universe, I'll just shrink back, disappear for a year or maybe more. Hell no. Because hell's coming. So I might, what I mean was, hell no, get away. That's exactly what I mean. Shame on you if you heard something different. But seriously, the leaders of this world have no solutions for that stuff. Like, no solutions. But with so many people in crisis and despair, should the church disappear? I think Jesus said something about this. He said, you are the light of the world. A city that cannot be hidden, that must be up on a hill. Let me get it. I don't want to paraphrase him. I'll paraphrase Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer but not him. You are the light of the world. This is Matthew 5, 14, 16. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now his people, this is, this is loaded. I thought Jesus was the light of the world, and he just said, you're the light of the world. Yes and yes. It's both in the Bible. Jesus is the light of the world. It clearly says that. And Jesus says, thank you very much. And by the way, my light's in you. So you're the light of the world. The light doesn't shine in the darkness magically. It shines through people who refuse to be put under a basket and in fact try to find the place where they can get up on the hill to say there is a light in the darkness. It's good to know him. It's good to know him. So heaven, yes. The world is in crisis. It's not time for the church to shrink back, but to rise up to shine the light of Christ. That's what we want to do. I mean, it's, it's crazy out there. I, my wife and I were in Lowe's, and uh, I love Lowe's, by the way. God bless Lowe's, so I'm not capping on Lowe's. I get in trouble with Lowe's, <laughs> buying stuff from my garden. Okay, Lowe's, Target. Best Buy. We did a little trifecta the other night. Christmas shopping, you know. I went to Lowe's. She went to Best Buy. We met in the middle at Target. And when we got in the car afterwards, it was a weird moment. We were both, we, we both had this experience, and we kind of looked at each other, and we're like, did you feel that? Yeah, did you feel that? I mean, it was like morbid despair. There's Christmas music playing, but it is like a zombie apocalypse movie where you can just feel on people is what's supposed to be the most joyful time of the year. There's this like blanket, blanket of ick that has fallen upon good people. Despair, fear, just the hope sucked out, the life sucked out. That's why we're just, we're not trying to be contrarian. We just need to say, there is a king. The world needs the king. The church is essential. Church is eternal. I mean, we, this week, it's a, you know, there's a double lockdown now or whatever it is. So it was like, I got the little note from Google. It was like, do you want to update your business status? Oh, heck yeah, we do. <laughs> or like COVID update. So if you haven't seen on, not like you're Googling elevation, but if someone does, what's the COVID update? We are open. Church is essential and eternal with 40% or more of the adults in the U.S. per the CDC, which has got to be conservative on it, going through mental health crisis. This is not the time for the church to shrink back and disappear, but boldly gather, worship, and encounter the life-giving power of Jesus. And then I ran out of space. So there we go. There's our COVID update. 
you know, it's just trying to say, you know, as Jesus is king, COVID doesn't get to stop us from being church for a year. As beginning, you know, we said from the beginning of COVID, like if you're sick, stay home, get, get healthy, which, you know, praise the Lord. We're praying for the health of, of elevation. And so far in this nine months that we only know of two confirmed cases of COVID in this church. And they're right here. No, just kidding, sorry. I'm just going to test your faith level. Cynthia called me. I'm like, yeah, come on, girl. It's all good. No, it's, sorry. Not funny. It's not funny. See, when my wife's not here, I kind of lose it. But seriously, and they, they were a couple. They were visiting Arizona, so wasn't in our church. They got COVID. They stayed there. They quarantined 14 days. They're healthy. They're fine. Haven't been back because of actually church, or excuse me, work has, has called them in. But, you know, of, of course, like, we don't want anybody getting hurt. So if you're sick, take care of yourself, and don't spread it. And if you're immunocompromised, be careful. We don't want vulnerable people getting hurt. So that's real. We're not minimizing that. But... We're also saying that there's some things to wrestle with. Bigger spiritual realities going on where there, there are certain kings that are trying just to say, church, go away. And we're saying, no, if Jesus is king and the world needs hope, and if we really believe what we say we believe, that there is only one true source of hope, then heaven, no, we're not going anywhere. People need hope. And let me, let me close here with this. Uh, there was a really fun uh, study that came out on December 7th, just, just a few days ago. And I, I love, I don't really at this point need science to tell me that God is real. But I love when once in a while, you know, you see something. Or actually, there's a lot if you look into it. But when science will affirm or validate the truths that we already know in Jesus are absolutely real. So right now, and you can look it up. Recent Gallup poll published December 7th with this headline Americans' mental health ratings sink to a new low. Which is not a surprise. And again, like the CDC doesn't feel like putting out another report, but I guarantee you if they did another mental health study like they did in June, it would only be worse. So Gallup poll did this study that apparently they do every November anyways about Americans' mental health. And that's the actual screenshot. Sorry it's small. I just wanted to take the actual screenshot and show you guys because you can look it up. But this is exactly how they break down the, the social study, the scientific polling that they did. So the, the percentage of the overall population who reported their mental health as excellent dropped from 43% in 2019 to 34% in 2020. So, you know, roughly 66% of adults in America said their mental health is not excellent. Those numbers do coincide with the CDC numbers that 40% of Americans say they're having a mental health crisis or having to turn to substances to, to cope with it all. So those numbers can line up well. But this was what was buried in there that literally didn't even get mentioned in the article. There is one group in the United States of America whose mental health improved in 2020. One demographic. Weekly churchgoers. <laughs> this is awesome. You can't make this up. And Gallup is not a Christian organization, by the way. They probably would have highlighted this. The percentage of churchgoers who reported their mental health as excellent rose from 42% in 2019 to 46% in 2020. All these different demographics decreased. Every single demographic. And if you can't read that paper up there, the different demographics are, demographics are male and female, Republican, independent, Democrat, weak, uh, white, non-white, married, non-married, age groups, 18 to 29, 30 to 49, 50 to 64, 65 plus, household income under 40,000, 40 to 99, 100,000 or more. Every single one of those groups decreased in their mental health, including religious service attendants who were in the category of 
monthly or seldom. Hey, that's okay. I'm not saying that against you. The only group that increased their mental health is weekly churchgoers. Wow! It's amazing. The science is affirming what we know is true, that dedication to God makes your life profoundly better, even in the midst of crisis. So, amen. Yeah. And that's real. I, I will attest to this. This is happening in our church family. The people that I interact with are thriving. And I'm not saying they got it all together, there's no problems and everything easy. That's not the case. But I, I went home one day and I, and I shared this with my wife because it was such, we love to talk about what God's doing and spiritual things. And it was like, I had to share this story. Like, it's such a contrast. I was with a group of people outside the church and it was so gloomy. Good people, leaders, gloomy, despairing, fearful. That, that I went home and was talking to Don. I was like, man, do we live in a bubble? Because that is so far from my reality. It's so far from like feeling what is like this thick blanket over this group of good people, like walking in that zombie-like apocalypse. It was so foreign. I was like, are we just a big bubble? Because the people that I get to do life with, that is not their reality at all. These people are genuinely full of hope. I mean, wrestling's through stuff, and that's okay. Yeah, when fear's assaulting you every day, it hits you. So just to, to wrestle through it is, is not a problem. That's why God said to, to Joshua in 1.9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, don't fear or despair, because I'm with you. He knows the reality. God knows the reality that we're going to get challenged. So wrestling through that is normal. It's the part of following Jesus. It's a part of dying to self. It's a part of making Jesus actually king of kings in our mind, heart, and spirit. So the journey and the wrestling's okay. But what I got to share with her, which was this beautiful moment, and she completely agreed, is that that's, wow, praise be to Jesus, that is not our reality. That is not this reality. When we dedicate ourselves to Jesus, there is victory. There is abundant life. There is genuine thriving happening in the people of God when he's king of kings. Let's pray on that note.